Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with Joe Hagan as usual. Joe, we have an amazing interview today with the Attorney General of Massachusetts, Mara Healy. It's an amazing week for this, but we have so much going on. We need to just like step back and take a pause. Let's take a step back. We're going to get to the possibilities of prosecuting President Trump for uh, crimes against the country in a moment right? That's the steak in the meal here. But uh, first things first, let's discuss your instant climb to fame online this week when Leslie Jones, the former SNL comedian, saw you on MSNBC, saw you on TV, and uh, the following took place. Let's listen. Whoa. My God, who are you? Oh, her name is Emily Jane. Okay, Emily Jane Fox. And you better say all three of them fucking names. Are you a young Claire? Because your backsplash is killing the game, boo. And your little shells with your dishes and shit. Is those wooden bowls? Are they clay? They straight clay bowls, huh? But let me tell you something, um, homegirl, with your little uh, Scotland plaid dress on. You are absolutely uh, gorgeous. You're gorgeous. Yes, you are, girl. I love your backsplash. And, and the fact that we can see your hood on your stove, that's an important thing to me. That's important that you exhaust in the house. You got exhaust. So I just saw this moments before we started recording. I saw this for the first time, and I was keeling over laughing uh, because it's hilarious. And... Um, you must have heard about this instantly when it uh, when it happened. Well, here's what happened. By the way, it just like it really turned my 2020 around. It's such a delight, and and Leslie Jones is so talented, and I watch her all the time. Like I, it has become sort of a solve for the pandemic for me. Ever since the election, when she started posting her reactions to um, people like me on cable news, it's just such a delight. Um, I had a hit as usual last night. It was. It late on the East Coast. It was semi-late on the West Coast. And um, Lee and I were sitting down. We were finally going to watch TV for the night. And I opened my Twitter just to check really quickly because after on, you're on TV, you know, you get a million mm-hmm. people commenting, sometimes nicely, sometimes not nicely. And I saw that and my heart stopped for a second because you just never know where it's going to right. go. When someone mm-hmm. very famous who you think is very funny starts talking about you, it's like, 
you just start instantly sweating. Yeah. But it was truly such a such a, a fun moment, and um, you get to hear from all sorts of really lovely people in your lives the morning after something like that happened. So it's been really just a, a true yeah. delight. She made your stove famous. Oh, truly. I, I, I have to <laughs> give credit to Lee for that. The, the stove predates me here, but uh, we're all very lucky. Well, this is, um, you know, it's hard to believe that, that uh, last week – was Thanksgiving. I mean, time is starting to finally go back to normal. It's it's where, it's real. It's it's actually happening in real time. That's right. There's in the, the I I'm one of the things I'm delighting in is this incredible shrinking president. You just you know in the movies when somebody gets shrunk and their voice starts to get squeakier and squeakier totally. as they get tiny 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 and you just hear ah, I'm gonna come back in 2024. But totally. you know it's completely asinine because now he's only like an inch tall. Yes. It's, it's actually like, I know I've said this before, but I, the only way I feel about this is that he is irrelevant. He yeah. is irrelevant. And that is like the, a fate worse than death for him, but it's such a right. blessing for all of us. I don't care. I didn't watch the 45 minute speech yesterday that he gave to no one. No. Because why do I need to listen to the rantings of a mentally ill president? It's it's crazy. I don't need to do that anymore. You don't need yeah. to do that. What a blessing. The one-line description of it was enough for me. That was uh, that's that's all it. I needed to know. Turn the page. What else we got? Who cares? Who cares? There's, there's yeah. actual stuff happening in this country. Let's pay attention to stuff that matters. Like our interview with yes. the Attorney General the, of Massachusetts. And you know what? I want to say just very quickly before we jump right into this. Yes. Um, there's a lot of controversy and debate in the world this week about, um, you know, should we or should we not, uh, prosecute or investigate or indict a former president? Is it going to turn him into a martyr? You know, given what we already know, we, we might decide it's not prosecutable and blah, blah, blah. I 100,000 billion zillion percent disagree with that. Why? I think that we look back at the 2008 and the Wall Street crash, and you look at the the uh, failure to indict individuals mm. for personal irresponsible behavior that affected the lives of millions, you know, and I mean, you can just blame the Obama administration or Eric Holder, and there's different reasons they'll give for why they didn't prosecute Wall Street CEOs for crashing the economy with a giant Ponzi scheme. But none of them are good enough, as far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> and a lot of the pol politics we've seen over the last 10 years culminating in Trump grew out of, in my thesis, out of the financial crash of 2008 because what metastasized out of that, um, you know, kind of financial tragedy were all these like uh, horrible political movements that the Tea Party and then Trump and all the conspiracy theories and the, you know, attacks on quote unquote globalists and all this kind of nonsense that we have been living with kind of came out of the irresolution of that. Mm. You know, the failure to kind of say, you know what, it's not a big conspiracy that's controlling the globe. It was these individuals. There are individuals that have to be brought to justice in order for the world to be righted. And Trump is now one of those individuals. He's, you know, individual A who needs to be investigated, in my view, 
you know, I'll beat that drum. But you know what? Let's turn to Attorney General Mara Healy, who knows something about what she's talking. Well, about. she talked all about that, and and she's in your camp, and and both of you have made very compelling arguments. I'm generally of the disposition of like, let's just let things go. I'm the younger sibling. I just like that. Just by the time I'm mad about something, I'm already not mad about it. I just I just am very quick to let everything go. But I. I'm not going to be quick to let the rule of law go and, and right and wrong. And I think that I don't think an example should be made of our president, but I think that law laws still matter. And because he's the president, he's not above the law. And I think that that is really important. I think you're a hundred percent right. That is what we saw with wall street CEOs. They were above the law. And I think that that sowed so much discontent in this country that everyday people pay for these crimes and the rich, powerful people are too good for them. And I think that this is a very important inflection point in our nation. And we talk all about that in our interview today. My only regret is that we recorded this interview earlier this week because I thought I was being a conscientious podcaster. (laughs) And we didn't get to talk about all of the pardon madness and the investigation from the D.C. Attorney General into the inauguration that we now know Ivanka Trump was deposed for five hours for earlier this week. Oh, to be a fly mm. on the wall of that deposition. I would just kill for it. So I'm I'm sad that we didn't get to talk about that. But we talked about so many other things. We talked about what we should do for the president. We talked about what it was like to sue the Trump administration a hundred times over the last four years about wow it, it's crazy we talked all about what will happen under a joe biden administration um she was sort of part of this superhero justice league of of people who are stepping up and actually doing things to stop the trump administration from violating our constitutional rights and from putting American citizens in harm's way. And it was really just fascinating to talk to someone who was so on the front lines and will continue to be. Um, We talked all about election fraud and what needs to happen in order to reform our electoral system before we are, before we know it back at the polls again in two years and in four years. Um, We talked all about COVID-19 and what she is seeing in Massachusetts. And it was just such a wonderful interview. I'm excited for you all to hear it. And I think that as we sort of try to close out this one chapter of the Trump era, it's important to remember uh, that, that some of the people who have seen what we've all seen and worked towards what we've all hoped that they will work towards will continue on into this next era and take what they learned and apply it to the Biden administration and beyond. And I think that we are all different people than we were four years ago. And how that will inform who we are going forward is just going to be really interesting to watch. We don't know the effects of this Trump administration yet. I know that there will be. And I think that watching someone like the Attorney General and and how she has learned and, and she has grown will be really interesting to see. Mm. Well, I'm excited to listen. Let's get up to the front lines of this thing with Attorney General Mara Healy. 
We are so lucky to have Attorney General Healy here today. What a treat. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Oh, it's great to be with you, Emily. How are you? I'm fine. I'm curious if you are just bone-crushingly exhausted after the last five years, and particularly this last stretch of a year. You know, um, I, I certainly feel much better now that we've gotten past the election, uh, but it has been a really difficult and full year. Um, when you think about COVID, when you think about the moment of racial reckoning that we're having in our country, when you think about all that led up to the election and protecting a free and secure election, there's been a lot of work uh, for me and, and our teams. And, you know, I'm, uh, I was happy to, to uh, get a little downtime over the, the Thanksgiving break. Um, but you know, this is just the reality that we're in. And, and so many people have uh, endured so much this year and continue to. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about that. But it's an incredible time that we're, we're living in. And, you know, when you look back on the last four years, um, I don't think you can overstate um, how much energy and effort uh, it took to hold the line, you know, against... Mm a Trump administration that was uh, doing things so entirely unprecedented and uh, really in violation of so much of what we know about norms and the rule of law. Mm. Well, let's talk about how you held the line a little bit. I may get these numbers totally wrong, so you'll tell me uh, and, and correct me if I do. But during the Trump administration, state attorneys general filed nearly 140 multi-state lawsuits against federal agencies on Anything ranging from the travel ban to DACA, student loan protections, family separations at the border, citizenship questions on the census, the border wall, transgender health care protections, Obamacare, the U.S. Postal Service operations. Those are just naming a few that I jotted down before this. That's compared to 78 and 76 times that the Obama and W. Bush administrations respectively were sued over the course of eight years, not four years, eight years. The number is head spinning. And I believe that you as Attorney General of Massachusetts were involved in dozens of those. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, more than 100. And, you know, what a sad commentary that in order to um, stand up and defend the Constitution to uh, protect the rule of law, we found ourselves taking Donald Trump and his administration to court over 100 times. But, you know, it was absolutely necessary. And the good news is we won um, over 80% of those cases. And, you know, those are cases. We've also just in the, the area of climate and clean energy, for example, my office just released a report. We took more than 300 actions to, uh, to, to thwart, to stop Donald Trump's dismantling of climate and clean energy policy. So the numbers are staggering, but you know, when you have a, a president um, enabled by others who was looking to gut health care for millions of Americans or roll back environmental protections or reverse years of progress and reproductive freedom, you know, you think about all the conspiracy theories that he fed recently about the election. Mm. You know, that's why it's been really important for us to be active. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just fortunate that as a state attorney general, I was able to, uh, to do something and, and join my colleagues in what has been a really critical time. I can't. I can't even imagine what this has been like for you. I, I also, um, I hear you when you say you're fortunate to have been active during this time. I feel like one of the luckiest parts of my job 
is that I had a voice during this time and so many people felt so many things. They were angry, they were upset, they were enraged and they didn't have agency to do anything and I think that's why you saw so many protests and I think you saw so many people glued to cable news and I think that we are among the lucky ones who are able to channel our feelings into into something measurable. I'm wondering what it's like um, personally for you to be part of all of those suits and, and, and have all of the feelings that everybody has but have to channel them into um, like tangible actions that you're taking? Well, you know, I have to say there were moments that I found myself, you know, just just saying to myself, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that, you know, the, the law is being pushed and tested this way. Um, and, you know, I, I just always had the view that, you know, I was lucky. I, I co-chaired the Democratic AGs Association. Um, I've been able to work with my colleagues, you know, from from November 2016 forward. We met and, you know, uh, developed basically a playbook for what we needed to do in our offices to hold the line, anticipating that Donald Trump was going to try to do all sorts of things that were illegal, unconstitutional and harmful to our states. And so that's why we were so prepared. We really were prepared um, for this for this battle. And, you know, I think our success rate shows that. But. You know, for me, what I always sort of went back to, I remember meeting a mother who had crossed the border with her young daughter um, and had been picked up um, in Texas by ICE agents. She was separated from her young daughter who went on to celebrate a birthday cold and alone in a facility far away from her mom. And Mm. her mom had made her way to Massachusetts and she came to my office for help. And we ended up filing a lawsuit on her behalf when we successfully challenged uh, the Trump administration's separation of, of children from their, their parents at the border. But I remember hugging her as she cried in my arms. And I just said to her, you know, we're your government too. And I felt that. I felt that to my bones, that I have an oath and, and an obligation as um an elected official to make sure that we abide by the constitution, we stand up for our freedoms and the constitutional principles. And, you know, I felt uh, really satisfied when shortly after we took that case to court, um, I got a call and that little girl was on a plane to Massachusetts to be reunited with her mother after the court Mm. struck down the separation policy. And, you know, these aren't just fights about principles and policies and laws and rhetoric. The thing about the last four years is that it's involved humanity, right? I mean, mm. there's the plight of immigrants or, you know, those who can't afford access to, to health care. Um, you think about so many degradations and, you know, it, uh, it does leave you weary at times, but it's also really made me appreciate especially now with the election, the role of state and local officials in doing their jobs, you know, making sure they're there to do their jobs. And that's what's going to help our democracy survive. Um, And our democracy will be, you know, all the better, too, now that more people are engaged. I look at Georgia, right? I look at the number of voters who've come out 
that's a really powerful thing. And you talk about your voice, right? And the importance of one's voice and some people not feeling like they don't have a voice. We've said throughout the election, your vote, you know, is your voice. And to see people's engagement and activism in government is so important because the constitution is we the people. It was never I the president, right? It's we the people. Um, and hopefully now more people as we turn to a Biden-Harris administration, as we move forward, what has really been ugly and unfortunate chapter in our history, we'll have more participation uh, from more people and our government and society will be much better as a result. I think that you're totally right in that uh, a lot of the institutions were completely put to the test, particularly, I mean, all the time over the last four years, but particularly over the last few months. Uh, I, I could not have imagined... Um, besides the reaction of our president and the Republicans, a smoother process to have actually happened over this crazy election. And it worked and uh, people showed up. And, and I really feel like this has shown how resilient democracy is and how resilient our democracy is. And I feel like it has been the ultimate test and we kind of, we kind of passed it. And I, I, I felt such a renewed sense of faith in people and in our country and in our constitution. And it's been such a sigh of relief over the last five years to have that feeling again. You talk about the success rate that you had in court. And my mind leads to, uh, yes, that could very well be a function, and you can tell me if this is true, of the fact that your arguments were just sound and their arguments were not sound. But I have to ask you, the president, in terms of his personal lawyers, was not known for choosing uh, the best and the brightest, the finest of class. What was it like arguing against the Trump administration? Is that Was it the same as other Justice Departments or was there a difference? Well, I think we've got to separate the Rudy Giuliani, you know, clown show that, that came of in course. during the tail end of the election, right? I mean, those are horrible lawyers. They're not real lawyers. Um, let's separate those from Bill Barr and the Justice Department, who were there to defend all of the president's actions over the last four years. And, you know, no, I felt like we went up against a high caliber uh, legal um, talent. The problem for them and the reason we won, uh, you know, over 80% of the cases is because they actually didn't have the defense. I mean, they were doing things. Donald Trump was doing things that were illegal and unconstitutional. And, you know, um, that's, I think, why we had the success rate uh, that we had. It also shows, too, I think, like these weren't even close calls. And so you really saw that you had a, a president doing things that had never, ever been done before. Not only had never been done before, but never even contemplated before, right? And, you know, what we need to get back to throughout government is restoring sort of normalcy, restoring the rule of law. We've got to build back up and support these government agencies um, where a lot of people and brain power has just sort of fled uh, over, over the last few years. There's a real morale issue. This can happen. Mm -hmm. But I think that's going to be really important that um, the Biden-Harris administration gets the support that it needs, that these agencies are, are rebuilt and restaffed. Because frankly, you know, we had a United States Justice Department and a U.S. Attorney General that 
completely abdicated their responsibility. They violated the oath, and he violated the oath that he was swore to uphold in tending to the Constitution and the rule of law. And as a result, state AGs like myself, we became sort of de facto U.S. Department of Justice, right? Like they, they weren't there. They weren't showing up to protect people. Um, and we had to be there. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to that being different and work, working in partnership states and the federal government, you know, to move things forward with people. But, you know, that's, that's where this, this has been. Um, and I'm sure many will write many pages about this, this chapter of our, our history, but, now, I also want to say to Emily, I'm really proud of the people who did stand up, you know, who did their jobs. We, we just talked about the election. I mean, that didn't just happen. Um, it took a lot of effort, right? People probably don't understand just how hard it was to make sure that this election was safe and free and fair um, because Donald Trump tried to play games from the very beginning. Remember, he tried to tinker with the Postal Service and actually slow down and sabotage the operation of the Postal Service because he didn't want mail-in ballots. Um, he thought that they were going to be to his disadvantage. We had to sue, take him to court, you know, to, to stop that from, from happening. Um, time and time again, AGs had to be in court, whether it was defending early voting laws or, you know, uh, how, how the time during which votes could be counted. I mean, we were, we were having a presidential election in a pandemic, and obviously things needed to be different. Um, so I just think the role of state AGs was never more important in, in protecting uh, the vote, upholding the will of the people. I also give huge credit to, you know, governors and secretaries of state, local election officials, um, poll workers, people who, you know, showed a true dedication to our democratic institutions and made sure that every legal vote was counted. Um, and that's really important. And I think as we look forward, you know, we have got to have more people working together, um, irrespective of party, um, mm. who believe in, in building. And, you know, between COVID and the devastation, it's wrought. Um, as I say, this moment of racial reckoning and an important time to, to really examine ourselves, we have an opportunity to build in new and different ways going forward that are, that are going to make for a better society. But we can't do that just along party lines. We've got to find ways to work together. And I'm confident we will, but it's going to take, you know, um, we've got to get rid of the, of the disease of mistrust and distrust. And we've got to, you know, Donald Trump needs to, to exit, um, you know, and uh, in, in just the element, you know, his efforts to sow confusion, right, to cast doubt. One of the major problems we have now is while Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris won this election, um, understand that for the 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump, the vast majority of them believe that he still won, believe that um, Joe Biden came by this through fraud. That's mm -hmm. a problem, right? When we know there's absolutely no evidence to that. But that's something that we need to work on eliminating um, because that's that's really a that's, that, that's not healthy, obviously, for, for government and for society. This is Inside the Hive. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper 
with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. Let's stop there for a second and talk about the party line that that are so thickly drawn right now. You have, I completely agree, this sort of Justice League of state, local, hyper-local superheroes who for the last few years have really stepped up to the plate and held this administration accountable and served their constituents in in a really heroic, incredible way. But that only happened on one side of the aisle here. I, I believe that only six of the nearly 140 lawsuits brought against the administration involved Republican attorneys general. That's a wild number to me. You could say that's because Republicans have been incredibly cowardly on every count over the last four years. But I guess there is an argument to be made that these lawsuits were political lawsuits. I think that you hear the right saying that. I don't believe that. But but that is an argument that people make. How do you assure people that the the job you are doing is not political when the other side is only playing politics? Well, you know, I think that there are any number of reasons why um, some of my Republican colleagues chose not to join certain lawsuits. Some of it is a matter of philosophy, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, and that's you know we that's okay. Like we have we have differences of, of opinion, right, with respect to policy. Um, I think that you cannot underestimate the amount of intimidation or fear. Um, and the way that Donald Trump effectively took over the Republican Party. Um, if you look at, I mean, just look at the, look at the, the paltry number of Republicans who've been willing to speak up, um, even in the face of his bogus allegations of fraud in this election. Look at how he, you know, attempted to, to make phone calls and, you know, uh, fly people to Washington to lean on them, to get them to not certify the vote in states, right? I mean, this was a guy in a family that attempted to wield control through all sorts of bullying uh, tactics. And so, you know, that's a little bit of the context that's there. And again, that's why I'm really glad he's gone so that we can get back to debating policy and trying to work through our differences. As for our lawsuits, um, you know, when I take action, I take action because I see a wrongdoing. I see a legal violation. You know, the way in which they they came up with 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 the rules that we're going to try to uh, 
roll back the important clean energy uh, regulations that have put in place uh, without following the law, you know, needed to do that. That's a wrongdoing. We'll take action. I've also got, you know, a thriving clean energy economy here in Massachusetts that was going to be directly affected by what Donald Trump was trying to do in a gift to the fossil fuel industry. It's not political mm-hmm. for me. It's economic and it's a matter of, of due process. There's a way to undo laws and regulations. Um, Donald Trump and his team just didn't seem to ha- know how to do that. And that's why so many of the lawsuits we we filed against him were successful. I mean, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm very comfortable standing by our efforts to um, prevent, you know, healthcare from being ripped away unfairly uh, from millions of, of Americans or you know, I'm I'm very comfortable, you know, having fought Donald Trump in court when they wanted to change the census to, to undercount people, to stand up for the legal principle. But no, everybody, every person in our state should count, right? That to me is a basic principle um, when it comes to, to things like the <laughs> census. That's sort of the whole point of it. That so, feels like common sense to me. Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. Um, you know, so I'm... I'm hopeful that we can get to a place where where more Democrats and Republicans are working together. But, you know, I do think that the Republican Party is going to go through this moment of self-examination with Trump's departure um, and needs to figure out who it's going to be and who it's going to stand for, you know. Mm. Um, And, you know, I, I hope I hope we lose. Uh, for the sake of the country, I, I hope we have a very different Republican Party. Well, from from your mouth, right? <laughs> I I want to just think about one other aspect of what Republicans have done over the last uh, four years, and that is court packing. Um, the feder- federal judiciary has been wildly overhauled since President Trump took office. The pace and the scope has been brisk and swift and pretty stunning. And that's on top of the transformation that we've seen on the Supreme Court. From your perspective, what is the impact of that? And is there any hope of going back? You know, I say to people, elections matter. You know, um, back when I was supporting Hillary Clinton for, for president, um, you know, in 2016, in her fight against Trump, you know, I tried to talk to people about the court. Um, and the importance of that. And I think we see now just how consequential that is, that, you know, Donald Trump has been able to appoint all these judges over a quarter, over 25 percent of federal appellate court judges now are Trump appointees. And, you know, they're there for life. And obviously that that impact is lasting. We've already run into the situation, you know, in the last couple of years where we have decisions that that you know, um, were by Trump appointees. And you can see, you know, that uh, they, they make a real difference. So, you know, again, I just underscore for people like elections matter, right? And mm-hmm. particularly, I, you know, I think the Republicans and Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, you know, did uh, a uh, tremendous job. I don't say that in a qualitative sense. I say that in a quantitative sense um, of ramming through as many justices as possible. You know, that's Mm. the fact of the matter. They moved with such speed and 
you know, we're able to get these 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 confirmations done. I mean, they're 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 trying to do them right now, still, right? And sure. um, you know, as a lawyer, I understand the importance of courts, and you know, I would hope that the same attention be brought to to filling those opportunities, such that you know, judicial appointments, you know, that there there aren't openings left on the table as there there was frankly during the Obama. Uh, administration. And, you know, I know sure. that that was, it was absolutely the, the height of hypocrisy to hold up the the nomination of Merrick Garland, right? I mean, that just, that is just uh, beyond the pale and, you know, mm. shameful, okay? But it is also the case that, you know, uh, I think there, that a better job could have been done of, of making sure that other appointments were filled. Um, sure. And that's certainly got to be something that this administration pays attention to, because, as I say, these are lifetime appointments <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we see the consequence um, of this. So, Sure. Speaking of, of hypocrisy, do you think that a President Biden should add justices to the Supreme Court? You know, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the solution, to be honest. I feel mm-hmm. like we have a system in place. It's worked for a long time. Um, and, you know, I don't I think people get fed up with, you know, efforts to sort of play politics uh, around things. Uh, it is also the case, though, that if Mitch McConnell continues to try to hijack um, <clears throat> confirmation processes and the like, um, think about what he pulled with Merrick Garland. You know, it's understandable why some would think of, of other means to deal with that, because you've got, you know, y- you've got real obstruction there. So what do you do in the face of real obstruction? Well, this is why obviously the the Georgia runoffs are so important. But it's I I think about this question all the time. I agree on a fundamental level that um, people are sick of of Washington politics like that. But if one side is going to continue to play those politics, what does the other side gain from from staying on the sunny side of the street? It's it's a question that I don't know that I have the answer to, and I don't know if you have the answer to it, but it's very tough when one side continues to play those politics and the other side is held accountable for for sort of staying on the high road. Yeah, and I, I agree with, um, well, let me, let me say, I, I understand the premise of that question. Um, I don't think that, you know, we should devolve or debase ourselves and engage in, you know, um, tactics that we've seen, frankly, from the RNC. I mean, just having been through this this election cycle to see the games, right? I mean, I had colleagues having to bring criminal cases against those who were interfering with our election um, in um, in connection with, with the Trump campaign. And, you know, I have no tolerance for that. Uh, and you don't, you know, you don't fight fire with, with, with that kind of fire, right? Um, but you do have to fight. And I think that, you know, um, uh, we need to fight against misinformation and disinformation campaigns. Uh, we need to be smart and strategic. And I, I agree with you about the point that, you know, I think the Democratic Party, uh, we do spend a lot of time uh, talking and debating amongst ourselves, sometimes not seeing the bigger picture, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes not being prepared to just get beyond the party differences within our ranks to actually um, fall in line and, and get things done. And I think we need to do a better job of coming to terms with some of that and not letting the the uh, the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. 
Uh, it doesn't yes. mean we we give up on our values or principles, um, but you know we also need to look for uh, ways to be strategic. In the same way that you know I think about how how uh, strategic and effective McConnell and others were with the judicial appointments, I think about Stacey Abrams. Right, look at mm-hmm. her ten years of, of of building up voter registration and voter engagement in Georgia. Right, and look at look at that victory. Huge victory, so exciting mm. for me. One of the highlights of of this um, uh, of this election, and so there are ways to get there, but it can't be politics or business as usual. This is inside the hive. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, "Oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they?" What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of strategy, I'm curious about what your strategy is going into this next stage. Do you continue to push ahead with pending lawsuits against the Trump administration? Do you never want to speak his name again? What happens now to everything that is still hanging in the balance? Well, I think right now what, you know, my office has been doing, and I know uh, other AGs will, will be doing this together, but right now looking at what are the existing litigations and where do we want um, justice to withdraw their uh, positions, for example, um, so a lot can change over the next few months in terms of the actual litigations, you know, hopefully um, with the Justice Department um, withdrawing from some of these cases and, and changing their their position. Um, that's, uh, that's the first thing. Um, I do think that, you know, any number of efforts by uh, President-elect Trump, excuse me, President-elect Biden, uh, <laughs> I do think that any efforts by by uh, the Biden Harris administration to issue executive orders to engage in new rulemaking, right, to undo um, the, the the Trump uh, policies, um, will be met potentially with litigation. And so the Justice Department needs to be prepared to defend against that. And you know, I certainly want to do everything I can to help the Justice Department um, in that fight because you know we know what it takes having had uh, similar fights uh, and challenges over the last four years. So, you know, I would hope that state AGs um, can work to to support uh, the administration um, in in what we may see uh, from in terms of litigation. But we'll just we'll just have to see. What do you think should happen with the president personally once he leaves office? Should state attorney generals investigate his business, his practices? Should the Biden administration's Justice Department look into any of that stuff? I know there's a great debate, and I'm very curious what you think. 
Yeah, and you know, as a, a state attorney general, um, you know, I'm going to be limited in what I can can say. I will sure. say, Emily, that I think it is important that Donald Trump, his enablers, those who acted in concert with him, collaborated with him, and furthered um, actions that you know may have <clears throat> been uh, uh, illegal, criminal, or otherwise. He needs to be held accountable just as anyone else needs to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of this will, much of this will depend on, on facts and law. And, you know, obviously there are investigations underway. Uh, so the public doesn't have access to, to all of that information. Um, but I do think it's important that uh, he be held accountable. Um, and, you know, I'm confident that the, the right jurisdictions and and the right offices um, will uh, will do their job. Um, mm. I think it's I think it's very important. And you know, I again I, I could care less about Donald Trump. I'm I'm very happy to see him go. He has been, um, and this is not a partisan comment, but I just think about his his incompetence as. You know, there are tens of thousands of COVID cases each day. We now have more deaths from COVID than in all wars combined, except the, the not including the Civil War. I mean, it's outrageous what he's done, his callousness, his incompetence, um, his narcissism, um, his bullying, and just how he's hurt so many people. And, you know, with a, with an absolute, again, it's either, either, either he's ignorant or callous or, or both, I think both. And I think members of his family are as well when it comes to apprehending the, the actual lives and circumstances of, of people in communities. They're very good at emotionally appealing to people, right? Um, and saying, saying the right things or saying things that, that resonate with people. But he doesn't actually care about solutions. He never did for making life better. Um, he cared about you know, keeping himself in power. And that's why he stoked, you know, the, the flames of division and hatred uh, these last few years. Um, and it's why we were really on the precipice in terms of where we were going to go with our democracy. So I am happy to see him banished to the, the uh, annals of history. And we'll let others comment on, on that. Um, but <laughs> I'm about, you know, I'm about moving forward. And as I say, you know, it's not for one government to do alone. It's not for one party to do alone. Um, it's going to require collective action. And I think this is a good time for, you know, a reset in this great country of ours to think about the challenges, but to think about those challenges as opportunities. And that's what I try mm. to do. You know, that's that's how I try to approach it with optimism and, and hope and faith. It was, it was really affirming to see people stand up, you know, to see the Secretary of State in Georgia, a Republican in the face of all sorts of pressure, um, you know, go ahead and, and make sure that, you know, he did his job and fulfilled his responsibility. And, you know, I, I take a lot of faith in that. I take a lot of faith mm-hmm. in, you know, you look at that photo, right, of um, there was, I believe it was members of Navajo Nation, um, but they were, you know, they took to their horses and rode two hours to the polls, right? I mean, you just have these moments that are just like really almost chilling, you know, in their poignancy. And we have to build from there. This is Inside the Hive. As we talk about the election, 
you were so early to sound the alarm about what could go wrong in this election, uh, about the messaging around the election results, about the president undermining the election. And not only were you vocal uh, in, in sounding this alarm, but you were very active in, in the pursuit of making sure that the results were not undermined. Can you explain what raised your concern and what you did leading up to the election? Just break it down for me. What, what did you do to protect it? Because I know you were so busy doing it. Well, I think, you know, it's, it, 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 it almost, I don't want to take undue credit for it. I mean, some level it wasn't rocket science, right? I mean, this was a guy, a president, Donald Trump, who did anything and everything, who always operated that with seemed to operate with a view that the law didn't apply to him. And, you know, I sort of, you know, we've been, we've been fighting all of his affronts to the law and norms and, and everything the last four years. So looking ahead to the election, you know, my concern is that he, my concern was that he was going to do whatever he needed to do to hold on to that seat, to hold on to that power, whether it was to escape, you know, future investigation and, and accountability, um, or whether it was to, to further, you know, opportunities to, to monetize his uh, persona. Um, as, as we all know, he's facing boatloads of, of, of debt and boatloads, hundreds of million dollars of, of personal debt. Whatever the reason was, I believed, uh, as I think uh, many did, that he was going to um, do everything that he needed to do uh, to try to, to, try to uh, win this election. And, you know, I think he realized uh, early on when we started hearing him with the drumbeat about the Postal Service and about mail-in ballots and, you know, questioning their legitimacy. I mean, that, of course, was was the first page of, of what became, in our mind, you know, 20 pages of things that, that could play out here that he would try to do to steal the election. And so, you know, I'm grateful to the teams of lawyers in AG's offices, in governor's offices, secretaries of state's offices, um, who worked really hard to make sure that the law was upheld. We had conversations, you know, early on about, um, you know, helping to support um, colleague states and in, in their efforts to uh, protect the vote. You know, it's sort of, you know, we were very clear from the beginning, the state AGs, that it doesn't matter who you're voting for. What matters is that you have the right to exercise your right to vote. And sure. no one should be interfering with that. We need to protect that. And not only was it about exercising your right to vote, but your vote means nothing if it's not counted. So then making sure your vote was counted. And so, you know, that was the look, you know, I think I have it from my sports background, but it's kind of like, you know, you, you just you, you got to know what you're up against and you got to you got to prepare for it. You got to anticipate it. And I think that's why you saw the success that you did in the courts. Um, because, you know, folks were, folks were ready to go and people did their jobs. Sure. I mean, everything that you are protecting is fundamental and elemental. And I'm wondering what needs to happen in the next two years, four years and longer term to safeguard the elections, to make sure that we have reforms in place in, in order to not have these concerns in, in any other election going forward? It's a great question. And I think that is critically important work ahead. Um, 
the first thing we need to do is is deal with the fact that the vast majority of people who voted for Donald Trump believe that he won this election and that Joe Biden got there through fraud. That's a problem because objectively, definitively, there's absolutely no evidence of fraud. And, you know, you have members of the Trump administration um, saying that as well. But that's a problem, right? How do you deal with with people's uh, lack of faith in a process? I mean, I think the other thing that we've uh, learned is that there are ways to to make it easier for people to vote. I'm somebody who believes that actually uh, uh, more people voting is a good thing for democracy. So how sure. do we build in some of the innovations, right? Whether it's mail-in balloting, uh, which many of our states adopted for the first time, or you know, earlier voting. Um, what are the things we can do to actually make it easier for people to vote and have that voice in democracy that people talk about being important, but don't always show <laughs> as being important. So I think mm-hmm. those are a couple of immediate things. Um, I think we need more training on civics education. I've said that for a long time, Emily. You know, if um, one of the ways to beat disinformation and misinformation is is through education. Um, and then I, I think that we need to, to obviously work to make sure that we have the best systems in place. Um, not just, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, which is incredibly important, but just operationally, you know, um, are there things that we can do that are that are uh, better um, that, you know, improve the ability to um, to process votes, to count votes, um, you know, but I, I think it's a really, really important discussion. And, you know, one that I am certainly going to be engaged with because you're right. I mean, the premise of your question we're back here in two years with midterms. We're back here in four mm-hmm. years with another presidential. And we want to do everything we can to um, right now make sure that we are not running into any issues with respect to, to people questioning uh, the integrity of our elections or with respect to conduct by by uh, actors out there that would undermine the integrity of our elections and voting rights across the country. Mm. Well, the the good news in all of this is that hopefully in two years from now, we will not have the added layer of the coronavirus on the midterm election, God willing. I would be remiss if I don't ask you about COVID-19. I, I, I want to know what in your official capacity as attorney general you are seeing happening with, with coronavirus in your state. Uh, what are you focused on in your role as the pandemic continues to rage and roll on? Yeah, well, you know, Massachusetts was one of the state's earliest hit, hardest hit um, by COVID. We, you know, we're, we're dealing with this back in, in March. Um, we had a super spreader event with a particular biotech uh, company in a conference here. And, you know, we had huge numbers. And, you know, it's really required us to rethink how we do so much, how we go to work, how we travel, how we access healthcare, um, core, core services. Um, I've seen the disruption to our small businesses. I mean, you know, I'd say half of our small businesses are on the verge or have already closed. We've had um, so many, you know, uh, tenants and, and landlords unable to make rent or make their mortgage payments. We have students, you know, who are 
um, out of work right now um, because restaurants and bars where they worked are shut down. We have just you know numbers that are so overwhelming in terms of people seeking unemployment benefits. Um, our numbers right now for food insecurity are staggering. Massachusetts right now, you know, we have we're the fastest growing state in food insecurity. One in four of our kids are food insecure in the state of Massachusetts right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got people in our state who are living paycheck to paycheck, um, and that's not enough. We've got these record job losses, um, and of course, we've seen that you know no one's been hit harder than our immigrant and and black and brown communities. And, you know, again, I I think this is a moment where my office and what I've been trying to do is, you know, stop uh, illegal evictions. We have a moratorium in place on evictions and foreclosures. You know, we have uh, other measures in place. We worked with utility companies to make sure there were no shutoffs. You know, we've tried to to negotiate and, and mediate, you know, for people who, you know, lost out on, on trips canceled or school vacations canceled um, because of COVID. Uh, we've tried to work to, to get uh, more resources for small businesses and for um, those who are unemployed. Um, but I don't want to describe this as a silver lining, but I think it's just a reality that, you know, this is an opportunity as we build forward to build in a way that rids ourselves of the disparities that have persisted for far too long. I mean, mm. COVID exposed, we, we published a report my office did. I mean, communities of color are breathing the most polluted air and faced the biggest public health vulnerabilities in COVID and had disproportionate rates of, of COVID. Uh, communities of color, uh, many, uh, many uh, of our essential workers come from communities of color. They rely on public transit. They live in housing situations where they couldn't socially distance, where they didn't have access to, to health care. Um, you know, I think that we've seen disparities worsen, and this is an opportunity to build anew. We've got to seize it, though. You know, we've mm-hmm. got to seize it, and we've got to build out in a way that makes sense. Um, and, you know, I, I think about right now the fact that in Massachusetts, at least, most kids are not in school. Um, and I worry so much about the disparities where there are some households where people can afford tutors or, you know, kids are maybe learning in the neighborhood pod with one another. But for so many of our kids, you know, they're at home right now, uh, maybe with a single parent, maybe with a parent, you know, working or, or both parents working. And, you know, what is happening to them? What's happening to, to kids' mental health? Um, what are we going to do to prioritize and, and make it up to, to them um, so that they have the, the future and the opportunities that they need? Um, there's a lot of work ahead, but I guess, you know, I'm I'm remaining optimistic that this is an opportunity to build, you know, from from where we are. The the plate you have in front of you is very full. There has been some chatter about you joining the Biden administration, though, and I, I have to ask if you have anything to announce here today. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm very focused on on my job and, and my work here. Um, and I'll certainly do everything that I can to to work alongside with an administration that, like the majority of the American people, you know, uh, chose unity over fear and love over hate and competence over chaos. And, you know, I just think it's it's really important that um, we all work together. Uh, 
that the federal government engage with the states, um, that the states engage with the federal government, that we together, you know, confront the challenges of our time. And, you know, we need to do that in our Justice Department, um, in our uh, justice system. We need to do that, you know, when it comes to, to uh, economic issues and, and health care and um, national security and public safety. Um, we have to do that together. Mm. Mm. Well, I know how busy you are, and I am so grateful for you answering all of my questions and for giving us your time here. This was illuminating, and anytime you have anything you want to talk about, please come back and share it with us again. Well, Emily, thanks so much. It's, uh, it's good to catch up, and, and I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you to our guest, Attorney General Healy, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their great production work. And of course, thanks to our sponsor. Please support them anyway. you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.